Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. Please join me in welcoming Brother Thomas Davenport. Thank you, Deacon. It's both a joy and a little humbling to say it's been 15 years since I've been back here. Uh, I graduated from Robinson across the street in 2000. I'm from a military family and my parents moved up uh, to another part of Northern Virginia and I went away to college and you know these things, it's hard to, hard to get back. So I, what, I, what I found out, you know, I was invited to give a talk and I, you know, I saw the name of where I was giving the talk. I was, I was uh, uh, great joy, it's like, yeah, this is, this is the Lord telling me to, to get off my butt and get back here. So, I, <laughs> um, uh, so it's, it is a real, uh, real joy to, to, to come back here to St. Mary of Sorrows. I'm a student at the Dominican Council of Studies in Washington, D.C., and one of the great privileges of studying at the Dominican Council of Studies is our library. Um, the house has been there since uh, it was built in 1905, and the library predates that, drawing from some of the earlier studiums going back to the founding of our province in 1805. And we even have sort of older books than that dating back even further, with a particular emphasis on uh, Dominicans and the works of Dominicans. And I wanted to share one of these works with you, not necessarily one of the ancient works, um, so it's not necessarily a beautifully illuminated manuscript, but I thought uh, it, was, it was apropos in, 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 uh, to, to today. This is uh, the cover of a little talk given by W.A. Wallace, William Augustine Wallace, called St. Albert in Modern Science. He gave this talk in 1960, October 22, 1960, to um, the Aquinas College in Grand Rapids, Michigan, where they were just establishing Albertus Magnus Hall for Sciences. I, I still am not exactly sure what is going on in the cover. <laughs> there's, there's some Ixus fish up here. That's definitely some sort of rocket ship. Um, that might be a cathedral or like a candle. Maybe a candle. I'm, I'm looking at it now. I think it's a candle, but I'm, I'm very confused. Uh, inside the cover is, is a wonderful lecture by Father Wallace. Uh, not that the cover's nothing wrong with the cover, uh, but inside, inside is, is, is a very wonderful lecture by Father Wallace. And I was tempted to simply read that to you today. But I think Deacon would be a little annoyed at me if I did that. And honestly, it's, it's a bit dated. Um, but not necessarily in the way you think. Uh, some of the, the science and the worries might be a little different. There's a lot more emphasis on, as you might guess, nuclear weapons um, and, and, and questions surrounding that. But uh, in truth, it's dated not because what Father Wallace says there is wrong, but because so much of what he claims could happen is already just completely familiar to us. Um, what he has to say about the relationship of... of Faith and science and science and philosophy has become kind of our, our everyday understanding of things. So I'm not going to simply read this talk to you, but I am going to draw a lot on the work of Father Wallace and a number of other Dominicans who were from, that, from his generation. So he was a young priest when he gave this. He was part of what was called the Albertus Magnus Lyceum. Albertus Magnus is the Latin name for St. Albert the Great. So if I switch back and forth between those two, I'm sorry, but uh, we're talking about the same person here. But so this, this um, Lyceum, a uh, place of study, named after St. Albert, um, which itself was inspired by the work of uh, Spanish Dominican uh, Ancietas Fernandez around the time of 1931 or so, around the time that St. Albert was canonized uh, and, and uh, named a doctor of the church. A great influx of thought about St. Albert and his works, and there was a big push about 
what is the like what is the way that Saint Albert thought about science and philosophy? So that was great inspiration for a number of then young friars. And I just wanted to kind of dedicate this talk to, this is just a, a small sampling of them. You can see several of them have just passed away just recently. So I just, um, I wanted to dedicate the talk to them and I, I'd ask you to, to, keep them, to keep them in your prayers. So what exactly is it about St. Albert that these men were so inspired by? This, they, they thought that they could find in St. Albert in a certain sense, what we, the, the subtitle of the talk is, this, this ability to sort of reclaim science for God. In so many ways, it feels like science, and uh, to the popular, popular understanding, science and religion are just completely uh, um, opposed to one another. And so that's what I'm going to try and sort of begin to talk about today. Um, so this is the first of two, two parts. Today is going to be focused on St. Albert himself and St. Albert in his own day. Who was St. Albert? Why is, it, why is it he so great? Why is it that he's a saint? Why is it that he's the patron saint of scientists? And so looking at like, what it was it about St. Albert in his own time that was so special. And then drawing on that, next week I hope to talk about the ways in which what he learned and what he taught in his own day can teach us in our day about how to think about and talk about sciences. So today is a little more historical and then tomorrow, uh, next week we'll be more focused on, on, on how that applies to, to modern uh, questions. So St. Albert the Great is celebrated as a bishop and a doctor of the church, as a patron saint of scientists. He was a friar preacher, a Dominican. He was a priest, a philosopher, a theologian, a preacher, a teacher. He is both you know, a saint and great. But um, there also, in his own time, he was known by a few other things at points. Some thought of him as a dangerous thinker who was possibly driving people away from the faith. Uh, some in his own time and afterwards looked at him as almost like a, a magician, a conjurer, someone who had this uh, amazing power over nature. And, and some look back on his work and say, well, sure, he said a lot of things about the natural, but he's really just a, a collator. He took a lot of ideas that came before and just, you know, kind of group, put them together, which was a great, great work. It was very valuable, but he didn't really add anything to it. He didn't do much of himself. And so I want to take the time to think about why, like, why those, those misconceptions are wrong, which will shed light on what it was that St. Albert was able to do in his own time. In order to do that, I think I need to talk a little bit about the time he lived in, particularly the intellectual climate of the 13th century. So to try and as brief time on that, talk a little bit about Albert's life. So stepping into that intellectual climate, what it was that, how was it that he lived, what was his experience? And then addressing the particular way that he approached nature and these three misconceptions about that study of nature. And then showing how it was that he showed a way forward through this, this crisis that was growing out of this, this time in the 13th century and hope to show how he bridges the gap between these different ideas about nature and the, and the faith. So uh, the first thing to talk about is so when you think about the, the Middle Ages, the medieval period, the first thing to dispel is the, the, the quick caricature that I can still remember from my middle school textbook about the Middle Ages were the period of authority. Basically, the only way you could knew something was true and the only way you could end an argument is by showing how somebody else had already said it. The only, the only truth you could say was something that you could point to the guy who had already said it before you. This idea that, that all, the only way to talk about intellectual things was to, to, to point to somebody, to, to some great thinker, some father of the church, the scriptures, some, some uh, uh, Greek philosopher who had said it before. And, and really this is a, a, a great caricature. Um, if you look at the creativity and the, the work done in the Middle Ages, true, there was a great respect for those who had come before, but the, the energy with which they approached 
new ideas and new, new ways of thinking about these, uh, the, the, these perennial ideas uh, was, was astounding. I mean, you can just, you know, myself, you know, my own studies of the Summa Theologiae, uh, the great work of St. Thomas Aquinas, you know, there, there's question after question after question driving forward, not just looking back. Um, so the 13th century in particular, this period when so St. Albert uh, was, was, uh, was, was born and active, um, was a time of profound intellectual activity, activity and change. You had the growth of new universities, the first universities of Europe, this, these the new intellectual centers. You have the growth of the mendicant orders, the Franciscans and the Dominicans bringing a new spiritual energy, a new, a new uh, zest for preaching and for preaching for, uh, uh, and, and, and living religious life. And in particular, something that not, not everyone knows is there was a, a great intellectual shift with the influx of new ideas, really actually an influx of old ideas, uh, an influx of writings from some of the ancient Greeks that had been lost to the centuries, you know, so um, uh, through, 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 uh, through the, the, the uh, problems of time, they had lost contact with a lot of these ideas, and they had come back to them through uh, interaction with the Greeks and, and, and Arab thinkers. And so there was a crisis about what to do about these new ideas. We had a nice, neat system of how to think about the world. Does this still work with all this new, uh, new knowledge in a certain sense coming in? And there were uh, three particular currents of thought that I wanted to focus on in that. So one is, I guess you should call what the, the traditional current of thought, which you can sort of point to as the tradition drawing out of St. Augustine. Um, uh, so St. Augustine um, was, was brought up in a, a very, um, uh, it, the philosophical culture in which he was, w w grew up was, uh, where was placed on the work of Plato. Um, not everyone here is necessarily an expert in Greek philosophy, but so just the, the the idea um, that Augustine brings out is that the primary reality in the world, the, the idea that Plato focused on, the primary reality in the world was the form of something, not necessarily the thing itself. So you can have, uh, you've got your horse, you've got, you know, you've got your, 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 you've got your horse, your dog, you've got, you know, um, your pack of dogs here. The dogs themselves are not really the primary reality. The, re the real reality is the ideal dog, the sort of perfect image of dog you can have in your mind. And everything else is just sort of a, a vestige of it, a, a poor substitute. Um, it's, it's, not, it's not not a dog, but it's not the real dog that you want to talk about. And there was a way in which there, this could be harmonized with the Christian faith, and was. Uh, this idea that, that there was the created order as being something that was a stepping stone to God. That um, you see something created, it really reflects the higher reality that really is the reality in the mind of God. And there's something very true and perennial about that. But it, it changes the way you think about nature, because suddenly you're no longer, you don't need to think about the details of nature, because the details are the mistakes in a certain sense. What's, what, what's important about nature is the way it points you to something beyond. And so you don't really worry about the inner workings of nature so much as nature as a stepping stone, sort of as, as part of a mystical view that gets you to, a, to, to something beyond. And so you can't really say anything real about the, the physical, tangible, natural order. You can only really talk about the, the, the broader ideas. The second current sort of coming in just after this, right before the time of St. Albert, sort of drawing on some of these new writings that were coming in, is a different kind of flavor of that kind of Platonic idea. So it, it, it was a rediscovery of an aspect of this ancient Greek Platonic thought that had been lost that really had a big focus on mathematics. This draws on the Pythagoreans, 
some of you might remember the Pythagorean theorem in high school and you're having cringes right now, and I'm sorry. Uh, but the Pythagoreans had a view that math and numbers were the basis of everything. Like, reality was numbers. Now, Plato didn't go quite that far, it's a little bit different, but there's a real sense in which this idea of mathematics as the way to understand reality became influential in certain, uh, in certain areas, particularly in Oxford in England in this time. And so you had this thing called Oxford Platonism, this idea of, of mathematics as, as the, the key to reality. And, and so this, this did change things in terms of the relationship to nature. Because now um, there was a great interest in nature. There's a real, real great interest in the details of nature, but only insofar as you could get to the mathematical underpinnings of nature. You always had to look at nature through the lens of mathematics. Um, and that was the really only way to talk about nature as anything real. You know, there's a sense in which um, it's easy to prove things in math. One plus one equals two is very, very straightforward. And it's always true. Dog plus dog. That's a little harder. I mean, pretty often it's usually puppy, um, if you've got the right dogs involved. Um, but it, things happen. It's, it's a little messy. It doesn't always work out exactly the right. Uh, so there's something about mathematics that felt more true and solid. And so there was a way in which they wanted to focus on the mathematical aspect of things than the things themselves. And the third current is, again, coming out of these new ideas coming in, this new, new um, uh, thought coming in, which was drawn on that the other great Greek philosopher, the two kind of pillars of Greek philosophy, Aristotle, who uh, was initially very sus suspect in the church because the church had had a millennia to think about the sort of the philosophical currents that came out of Plato, and they had become very comfortable with how to think about him in a Christian lens. But Aristotle just seemed very, very different. Aristotle had a very strong focus on the particular, on the individual as, as, as looking at the individual as a key to understanding the, the, the broader um, uh, picture of reality and a very strong sense of the details of nature. Um, and so, uh, and also just, there are just certain things that Aristotle said that just seemed suspect. Uh, he, he believed that the world was eternal, that he could prove that the world was eternal, always had been, always would be. Um, and he doesn't really talk about God in the same way that Plato does. He, he has a sense of the divine, but it's, it's muted. And so it felt uh, disconnected for many Christians. Um, and then the way in which Aristotle had come in was the, uh, through, through, the, some, through other thinkers had sort of interpreted in a way, for instance, that uh, say that individual, uh, individual people don't have their own soul. There's a way in which we're all kind of one big world soul and people attributed these ideas to Aristotle and there was great uh, skepticism about whether this could even, whether, whether we should even touch this, whether it's even worth dealing with this pagan philosopher. Um, so this is kind of the, the crisis that is facing uh, the Christian West um, at, at the, the end of the 12th century and beginning of the 13th century. And this is the situation in which uh, St. Albert was born into. Um, so we're going to turn now to, to the questions about uh, just a, a brief sort of discussion of St. Albert's life to give a picture of, of how he fits into that. So uh, St. Albert was born uh, around 1200, you know, the dates, you know, 11, some people put out 1197, some people put out, 2000, uh, sorry, 12, 1207, but somewhere around 1200 in Lavin, Germany. Um, so this is a 13th century map. Uh, it, um, the, the countries are probably not completely familiar. Uh, they weren't to me. Um, but uh, so he's sort of central Germany. Uh, he was um, born to uh, a noble family, um, sort of a military family um, un under the, it's like knights under the Holy Roman Emperor. And uh, there's a particular story about his early life I want to share. It's uh, a little bit apocryphal probably, but it, it reflects a true reality about the way he, he and his brother Henry, younger brother Henry. So they went out on Christmas Eve, and they went out because they had heard 
that on Christmas Eve, animals could talk. <laughs> now, wh why the heck would animals talk on Christmas Eve? Well, the idea was, the thing that they had heard, the thing that Albert had heard was that everybody treated Christ so badly on Christmas Eve that the animals were so kind to him in the, in the manger that he, he blessed them with his gift that once a year on Christmas Eve, the animals could talk. The story is that Albert is dragging his younger brother, who's just getting a little, you know, scared of the dark, not sure what's going on, but he trusts his older brother, his really, his really smart older brother. He's going to follow him wherever he goes. So they're going, they're going for a particular farmer's house because you know this farmer has oxen. This is what, this is what Albert's really interested in because he wants to know the, he knows the, he wants to know what, what, what would the oxen say? I mean, would they speak Latin? Would they speak German? I mean, how is this going to work? <laughs> so they're, they're, they're sneaking their way across uh, to, to, to this, this farmer's house and they get very, very close and they know there's, there's sort of the, the, the keeper of, uh, of, of the barn, but let's be honest, he always falls asleep. So as long as they're, as long as they're very careful, they can tiptoe by him, find the oxen, and they can hide in a little place and, see, and maybe hear the oxen speaking to one another. So they, they sneak past the sleeping guard, they get in, and suddenly Henry sneezes. The guard wakes up, grabs the two of them, and drags them back home. And they never, they never get to see the oxen. And, the whole way home, Henry is just crying, and he's so sad, and, he's so, and he turns to his brother, I'm so sorry, I'm, I'm sure they would have talked. I mean, you had to have been right, I'm sure they would have talked. But Albert, Albert says, no, I, I had to see. You can't always trust what people say. So this, this story, I think, is a, in a certain sense a beautiful image of Albert's life in approaching nature. He was drawing on this vast source of knowledge that was coming to him from all different sorts of places, but he had this, this particular idea that he had to see and find it for himself in a certain sense. And you see this even in his later writings sometimes, where he'll, he'll quote things, or like he'll refer to stories he remembers from his childhood. He spent, he spent a lot of time talking about falcons because of his time as a boy in falconry. He talks about stories when he was studying in Padua of, of these things that he saw. And so this idea that you have to see to know what's going on. Um, and so we'll come back to that idea in a moment. But, so, uh, born around 1200, eventually, so when he gets to, to, uh, to adolescence, you know, being a, a, a smart child, he's sent off to study. He leaves for study at Padua, Italy. Now, I'm, uh, the way I'm doing this, so I'm, I'm leaving the little dots of where he's been, just so you get a sense of kind of the breadth in which he's covering. Uh, for those of you who don't have an immediate knowledge of how big uh, Europe is, uh, the distance uh, from Lavingen to Padua is a little bit less than different distance from uh, DC to New York. That's kind of the scale we're talking about here. So he, he leaves for Padua, um, he's, he begins his studies there, and while he's there, he meets uh, Blessed Jordan of Saxony, the second master general of the Dominican order, and this is just two years after the death of St. Dominic himself in 1223. Jordan himself recalls this particular trip to Padua. He's sort of stopping by on the way to a general chapter. He talks about how his initial preaching was met very coldly, but eventually ten young men came forward to, uh, to, to, to join the order, and particularly two very promising German students. Uh, and, and Albert is always thought to be one of those uh, very promising German students. And so uh, he received the habit from Blessed Jordan of Saxony in Easter of 1223. Fairly soon after that, he would have been sent to Cologne, uh, up in northern Germany, where he would have continued his studies, now focusing on theology. Um, and he spent about uh, 20 years uh, in Cologne and probably some other parts of Germany as well. Not exactly sure. It's sort of a quiet period. We do have some writings from him at that point, though. And already at this point, he is uh, quoting and referring to and talking about the works of Aristotle uh, and the works of these natural philosophical works of Aristotle, which is significant because 
in many places, they weren't allowed to talk about Aristotle still. They, like the, the books were banned and the church was still not, were not really sure about them. So he's already in his early formation diving into this, this, natural, this natural world that Aristotle was putting forward. So uh, after about uh, 20 years as a Dominican, he is sent to Paris to continue his studies and then becomes a master of theology, becomes sort of the head, uh, one of the, the, the two main uh, professors at, uh, Dominican professors at Paris, which was the intellectual center of Europe, particularly in theology. It was the prime focus and became a master of theology in 1245, the very year that a, a promising young student, uh, Thomas Aquinas, shows up uh, in Paris. And so uh, Thomas Aquinas is sort of taken under his wing as one of many of uh, the, the smartest Dominican students that would have been sent to this, the, the, the best studium that they had. And so after three years, uh, he was sent back to Cologne now to found a, a, a bigger studium, basically. They had uh, just founding a bigger school and sort of as being sort of the head of this process. And he brings St. Thomas with him. Um, and it's here in Cologne that we think that he started really commenting on these natural works of, of Aristotle, that he's really now focusing on thinking about what did Aristotle say about nature and what can I, what do I have to, what do I think about that and how can I share this with, with my brothers. And there's a great quote about this that I'll come back to later, but this is where he's really kind of starting to dig, dig into natural philosophy. But as you can see, um, he's already starting to travel a good bit. So, you know, he started, you know, to, you know that's DC, DC, to, uh, DC to New York down there, then back up to Paris. The thing you have to realize is Dominicans at this period, thankfully not anymore, uh, at this period, we're not allowed to use vehicles. And by vehicles, we mean anything. No heart, no ho no, not just carts or anything, no, no horses, no, no mules. In special circumstances, you might be able to ma maybe get a mule. But you walked everywhere. So he's walking all these places. Now think about what he's walking through. This is, this is medieval Europe we're talking about. We're talking about back roads. We're talking about brush. And all the time, this inquisitive view, I have to see. I have to see for myself. He's seeing things and, and absorbing the natural world as he, as he sees it. Um, he even talks about it later on where he would go out of his way to seek out little, uh, uh, you know, if he heard about some particular phenomenon as he was traveling, he would go out of his way to seek it, so seek out a mine to see some particular um, uh, uh, minerals or, or seek out other um, intriguing phenomenon. So, uh, so after these many years of founding his general studium, so he's already traveled a good bit, but it's about to get a lot worse. Uh, because he is elected Provincial of Teutonia. So uh, I only put a couple dots here. There are actually 38 priories in the province of Teutonia, which is, uh, was the largest province in the entire order at the time. And so the, this is sort of gives you kind of the, the bounds of, of, of what he's traveling through. And it, as, as Provincial, it is, it is job to visit every single one of those priories. Uh, oh, also that one. Uh, this, is, this, is, this was a missionary uh, priory that they, they founded up uh, all, all the way almost in Russia. We're pretty sure he actually did go there because he talks about seeing animals in Russia and some of their, their, their particular characteristics. So he is uh, uh, traveling everywhere and, and, and absorbing everything he's seeing. So after his, um, uh, and, sorry, and also then, you know, after going all the way to Russia, then having to travel down to Rome to visit, to, to visit the Curia there. So he's become well-traveled at this point. But he's also, it's a very uh, good and productive superior for the, for the brethren. So good that he becomes elected bishop of Regensburg. So he becomes the bishop of Regensburg in 1260, spends two years there doing a lot of great reforms, but just realizing that, that um, that's not really what his, his primary uh, uh, gifts were. He asked, uh, asked to resign, was granted that gift, granted, granted the resignation. And then he spent the rest, the rest of his life, almost 20 years, in sort of an active retirement. So he's most of the time in Cologne, but all over the place, 
traveling to being asked to, to settle political and religious disputes and all sorts of things. This is a very quick, brief run through his life. And the point I want to get across is that he was a very well-traveled and well-versed uh, well man in everything. So his, his primary job was as a teacher of theology. But he was also a preacher. He was also a superior pastor of souls, a bishop. He did all of these things, walking everywhere. So when exactly, when, when exactly did he really have time to be a scientist? Were we really talking about as a scientist when he's doing all these other things? Like I said, there's a way in which, you know, okay, he observes nature, but really, I mean, did he do anything with that? Well, it turns out, yes, he did. So this is a, uh, I realize you're not gonna be able to read this chart. I, I apologize for that, but I, the, the point is, uh, the, of, of the chart is not so much the, the words as the scale. So these are different individual works on different aspects of, of the natural order that he's commenting on, works of Aristotle. So he's starting with the physics, starting with uh, works on the heavens and the earth, on astronomy, on the elements, on the geography, um, on meteorology, on minerals. That's already a pretty darn bre wide breadth. And this is just his basic stuff. Then he went on to living things. So now he's talking about the soul, he's talking about on the parts of animals, he's talking about nutrition, he's talking about the intellect, he's talking about the nature and the origin of the soul, sleep and dreams, memory, motion of animals, breath and respiration, youth, death, life and age. And actually one of his greatest works is a, is a, a wonderful compendium on animals. On all the different animals he's experienced and you know, building off of the work of Aristotle, but, but bringing in his own observations of animals and plants. Uh, he had a lot of time, apparently, <laughs> to, to, to work on this and to spend this time drawing out the natural world and, and, and building upon these, these, the, the, these questions. So, I want to reference back to those, those, those three objections I brought up that people, people had had against Albert at certain points. One was that he was, he was leading people away from the faith. One was that he was a, sort of some sort of magician. One was that he really, I mean, sure, he wrote a lot of stuff, but he's just copying Aristotle here. He's not doing his own things. So the first, you might ask, what the heck is a theologian doing spending all this time writing about natural philosophy? Well, don't you worry, he wrote a lot about theology too. This is not even half of his corpus of the entire works of what he wrote. He wrote great commentaries on, on many, many books of scripture. Uh, he wrote his own Summa Theologiae. He wrote his own works on, on Mary and the Eucharist, and then other philosophical works he wrote. I mean, I'm focusing in this talk particularly on the, the natural world and the scientific world, but that's really, in a certain sense, doing a disservice to who St. Albert was, because he was such a, a well-versed and broadly under, you know, he, he, he was known as the universal doctor for a reason, because people really did th think he knew everything. Um, he, he had something to say on seemingly every topic. So, but that, that, that the amount of time he's spending is not the objection people are really bringing forward. What they're, what they're bringing forward is the fact that why is he spending so much time on Aristotle? Is this Aristotle guy actually worth dealing with? Can we, are we sure that, it, that, that, that this is not dangerous to the faith? And I think there's a great quote that he, that he himself puts at the beginning of his work on, on the physics, the sort of the first basic work of natural philosophy. He says, our purpose in natural science is to satisfy, as far as we can, those brethren of our order who for many years now have begged us to compose for them a book on physics in which they might have a complete exposition of natural science and from which also they might be able to understand correctly the books of Aristotle. Although we do not think we are competent of ourselves to carry out this request, this project, nevertheless, because we do not want to refuse the ref our brethren's request, we have finally accepted the task with which we had so many times rejected. Overcome by the requests of certain of these brethren, we have undertaken this work first to the praise of Almighty God, 
who is the fountain of wisdom and the creator, order, and governor of nature. And then, uh, uh, and then for the benefit of our brethren, and finally, for the benefit of all those desirous of learning natural science who may read it. Thank you, Friar. My question has, is in one sentence, and it's written right up there. He asked, he asked about uh, short, clear books or writing are good as an introduction to uh, St. Albert the Great. I was just asked this question, so I just looked it up, so I actually know the answer now. There's a book by Kevin Vost called St. Albert, Champion of Faith, which is a good kind of popular introduction that covers uh, not, it, it does talk about some aspect of, uh, of, of the science stuff, but really what I talked about really fits into his first chapter, doesn't fit into it, but he's, he's focusing on the science in the first chapter. Then he goes into the philosophy, the theology, his life as a preacher, his life as a, as a superior, as a bishop. And so it's, it's, a, it's a very good, uh, uh, beautiful little introduction to St. Albert. So that's, that, that would be, so Kevin, Kevin Vost, V-O-S-T, St. Albert, champion of faith and reason. Uh, thank you, brother. Uh, I was wondering, to what, I really get the impression from this talk that St. Albert was quite the innovator of science or natural philosophy. To what extent was his mythologies incorporated within the medieval university system? Sure, that's a, a great question. And actually, I'm indirectly touch on that a little bit next week, I, I hope. So in a certain sense, his methodology was, practically speaking, it's hard to point to um, like someone who came after Albert who was just like Albert in the way that he sort of was this just voracious devourer of natural things and talking about that. There were individuals who worked on that in certain places. But in terms of the, the, the theory and the idea that he, the way he approached nature, I think you can point to ways in which St. Thomas takes up that idea of what it is that we can say about nature. What true things are we able to talk about in nature? And I think St. Thomas takes that up and there's an argument that I, I spent a lot of time thinking, you know, thinking about these questions of how, how disconnected, say, does it seem? Because there's this idea that with Galileo, with Newton, with the beginning of, of modern science, you have a complete break from everything that came before. And one of the great efforts of those four friars I put up at the very beginning of the talk, um, in many ways, was to show that there's just, that's just not true. And in many ways, most uh, historians of science would, would see that that's not true either, that would agree that there is a continuity even at, at the beginning of the scientific revolution to what came before. And so you have people like Galileo quoting Albert, but not just sort of quoting, quoting him, using the methods he was talking about, the methods that St. Thomas talked about, not in exactly the same way that they did, but, but there's, you can see a, a progression that begins from the, the reintroduction of Aristotelian thought with Albert and sort of builds up to the time of Galileo and then in a certain sense sort of takes off and takes on a life of its own in different ways. But that it need not necessarily be, that, that, that there is a continuity there. I hope, that I hope that helps. Hi, and thank you for a wonderful talk. I was intrigued by the uh, remarks of Pope Pius XI uh, at the canonization in 1931. Um, it sounded as if there might have been a hint of nature versus, uh, or science versus faith. Was that already a topic uh, that was starting to be a, uh, contention at that time? I'm not, I, I can't say I know for certain, but I'm, I, I feel like, I, I think that is the case. Um, from what I've seen, uh, I, 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 I know a little bit more about some things that happened sort of a, a few decades later, but I think already um, it was a topic of conversation, not in the way it's a topic of conversation now, 
But it was a topic of conversation about the, the possibility of a healthy conversation between faith and science and whether that was even possible. I think one of the things to realize, so, you know, so, so St. Albert was canonized in 1931. This is right around the time of the beginning of kind of the quantum revolution, sort of Albert Einstein coming in, you have Heisenberg. If you look and you read the philosophical works of someone like Werner Heisenberg or, or Albert, uh, uh, Albert Einstein, and you read them talking about philosophy, they have a lot of actually very healthy things to say about philosophy. I don't think they're right on everything, but they, they, they've thought about philosophy and thought about the deeper implications of the physical world they're dealing with in a way that I never learned as a physicist, and I don't think most physicists ever touch on. I think there was the, 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 the education that was received in that period, the full breadth uh, classical education, there's actually a great, so for those of you who don't know, uh, Werner Heisenberg is one of sort of the two or three pioneers in quantum mechanics and, and bringing about this complete revolution in the way that we think about the, the smallest aspects of nature. And so he is, you know, for physicists, he's, he's a big deal. In his own day, in his own family, he wasn't that big a deal. His dad was a classics professor. His dad was a classics professor in Germany and a much, much bigger deal than Werner Heisenberg was in his own day because there was such a respect for uh, the, the tradition of uh, Latin and Greek and philosophy and, 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 and sort of a broader understanding of what it means to be educated than simply the, the scientific. And I think that's, that's a real loss that we have today. So I want to say that yes, there was already worry about the conversation between faith and science even in, 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 in that period, but uh, they had better tools to talk about it amongst the people that mattered at that point. Whereas I think we have more hurdles to deal with now because of the lack of tools that, um, I mean, I, I myself, my own, my own studies in science, I learned a ton of stuff about science and absolutely nothing about philosophy. And what I did learn about philosophy was really bad. So uh, there's, I think there's, it's, it's a different, there's a, there's a different flavor to the conversation now and the struggles and the difficulties that we have now than we had, they had then. But I think it, it was still there in a certain form, I think. I think that's how I would, would, would characterize it. Brother, you, um, your talk about uh, Alfred reminded me of my professor of physics who loved to tell the story about this uh, young monk who was at a meeting uh, of numerous folks that are trying to sit around and uh, talk about how many teeth a horse had. And they were citing all kinds of philosophers and all this. And this, this audacious monk had the audacity to suggest they go out in the field and count the teeth in a horse. And they threw him out of the room. Do you think he was uh, thinking about <laughs> our saint here? Uh, I don't know. So that actually, so that that story is in that book by Kevin Vost. He actually references reading that in a psychology book when he was when he was educated. I actually thought about telling that story today too. Um, <laughs> and that actually, actually, that story is traced to Francis Bacon, who was a, a 16th century Renaissance. I think that's right. Uh, I might be wrong. I might be wrong on the date. But he's an early Renaissance thinker, um, looking back already on the Middle Ages at that point. He's and I think he, he I think he puts the timing in the 14th century. Uh, that he's telling this story, and these look at these look at these monks who are so focused on on authority. It's like if we can't find a great philosopher or theologian who's told us how many teeth a horse has, it's a, it's a mystery of the universe that no one will ever know. I think I, it's hard to believe that people ever really believed that uh, in a certain sense. Um, yes, there is a great respect for authorities in uh, uh, in the medieval period in the whole tradition of the church. I mean, our church is in a certain sense built on tradition, and so if we don't respect what came before, we're lost. So th there has always been that. 
But yeah, I mean, I don't know if Francis Bacon had a particular person in mind when he told that story. I think he might have. I think he might have just been trying to make make fun of all the philosophers and theologians in the room, and then 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 build up this young this young monk. I don't know. But if, if there was anybody, it was probably a Dominican. That's what that's what Vost says. So. <laughs> Uh, brother, with thanks for your talk tonight. Uh, there's a fun, sort of a fun statement made about Albertus, and uh, but it has sort of a serious side to it, and I'm curious about your take. And that is, is that he was the last man or human who would have known everything that could be known at the time. There's because there's two sides of that. One was he did he know everything that could be known at the time, and two was he the last man to do it. Um, I think uh, I'd have questions on both counts, just because Albert himself was always realizing how little he knew about things, in a certain sense. He, there's, uh, when, he, when he was traveling around as a provincial, I, I didn't tell this aspect, so he had, uh, whenever he would show up to a new priory, the first thing he would do is go to the chapel. And he would pray, and he would thank, uh, thank God for his travels, the safety, uh, and, and, and thank him for the, the roof over his head for the night. Then he would go to the library, and he would search the library for any books he had never seen before. And he would try to hunt down any, any new and interesting thought, that, any new and interesting insight that he hadn't seen before. So um, if anybody could have known anything, I'm guessing Albert was up there on that list. But there, there are some other pretty good uh, uh, candidates for such a person. There's, the, I, I think my favorite, just because the name is so awesome, there's Peter Comister, who, uh, uh, which, which translates even better in English as Peter the Eater, uh, because he was the eater of books. Uh, he read everything. Uh, he ate books for, you know, it's, it's a, Silly image, but this idea that I think what you're, the, you're getting at, though, is there was a period when, in a certain sense, all of the great books could fit in like a, one room, and you could just take your time. At some point, I'm going to read all of these books. Uh, that's not possible anymore. It's just simply not possible. Um, and uh, but I don't. And so there's there's uh, you can be be sad about that, but you can also kind of be thankful about that that you're not dependent upon yourself to know everything. I think Albert has the right idea that we have to, to focus on observation and seeing, but in a certain sense, since he was kind of the, the only guy doing it, he had to trust in himself. Whereas now we have this ability where I, I don't need to have actually done every single, uh, thank goodness, every single biology experiment and chemistry experiment out there, because I'm horrible at chemistry experiments. Um, but I don't have to go out and, and do every single one of those to necessarily have a certain knowledge and trust of what's going on there. It's a, it's a lesser, there's a, certain, there's a certain trust in those who have gone before. Um, but the idea that you don't, that, that as a whole, we're able to go further. We need to be careful with that because you can get very specialized. And you can kind of get this idea that the things you know are the only important things. Um, so I, I, I think uh, th there might be other candidates besides Albert, but he comes pretty darn close. Thank you very much, Brother Thomas. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us.